Superficially, you could read that and think that. And if you don't know the Bible well, totally understandable that you would come to that conclusion. But here's the thing. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2, is not a text, it's a tweet. You know how people sometimes tweet stuff, and you read the tweet, and you go, they're nuts. Because a tweet is just a short little missive. It's just a tiny, a short little piece of information that goes out there. And without the context of who the person is and all the other things they've said, and blah, 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 you can naturally conclude that that person is off their rocker, or that that person is a bigot, or that that person is hurtful, or whatever, okay? You read just a little bit of Genesis 22, and you can come to that conclusion about God. But that's just a tweet. That's not the text. In fact, the whole chapter of Genesis 22 is not the text. You know what the text is? It's all of it. You got to know the whole Bible to understand this story is what I'm trying to tell you. That's why a guy like Dawkins will call this story child abuse because he doesn't understand the Bible. The Bible, remember, is this one grand story of how God has, has determined that because he loves us so much, he is going to do whatever it takes to save us from our rotten selves. He is going to save us from our sin. And he's going to send his own son into this world in order to accomplish that. And everything that happened before that, that's recorded in this book, is supposed to drive us to that conclusion. And everything that happened after that, in this, that's recorded in this book, is a reflection on the consequences and the implications of that event, okay? That's why we're going through this together. We're learning how to read this as one amazing book. And here we are in this very disturbing story of Abraham and Isaac. And I got to say, good on you, Jesus Storybook Bible, for not skipping this story, but actually writing, a, writing it out. I'm very impressed and very thankful that they did because this story, when understood within the context of the whole big story, is an absolutely beautiful picture of the depth of relationship that God wants to have with us. You know verse 2, when it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love? That's the first time love is mentioned in Scripture. It's the first time it's used. In this story, the concept of God, of love and what that is, is introduced first in, first in this story right here. And here's the irony. This is a story of a love that a father has for a son that he is being asked to give up. Let me say it again. This is a story about the love that a father has for a son that he is being asked to give up. If you know your Bible, there's echoes there, right? Doesn't that blow your mind? 2,000 years before the actual event. I know I'm tipping my hand <laughs> and telling you what this story is actually about. But 2,000 years before the actual event of Jesus being sent in this world to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, we already get the foreshadowing of that in this story with Abraham. What's going on in this story, though? And how does it fit into the big story? 
Well, the Jesus Storybook Bible actually does a great job of explaining it in the very first sentence in the story called The Present. It says this, God knew that his secret rescue plan would work only if Abraham trusted him completely. God had to break Abraham free of a growing idolatry in him in order for this plan to continue. And that's precisely what God does in this story. So here we go. Let's have a look at how he does that and see what it has to do with us. God says to Abraham, go, right? Abraham, here I am. Take your son and go to the region of Moriah. You're going to sacrifice him there on a mountain that I will show you. Now, that is an echo of Genesis 12, which we looked at last week, where God said, he came to Abraham, yep, here I am, go, I want you to go to this land called Canaan, I'm going to show you where it is, and Abraham went. So what we're seeing is, is the author is setting up kind of a parallel between the events of Genesis 12 and the events of Genesis 22. But when you look at what happened since Genesis 12, so Abraham says, yeah, I'll go. What does God say? He says, I want you to go, and I want you to go to take your family and go to Canaan. Abraham takes his family and goes to Canaan, but he doesn't just take his family. He takes a little more than his family. He takes Lot with him, too. That was his And then he does there. Instead, he goes down to the Negev Desert, and then when there's a famine, off to Egypt he goes. And after he comes back from Egypt... Uh, he doesn't have an heir yet, and so he complains to God, and he says, I'm going to make Eliezer my servant, my heir, because I don't have one yet. And then when God says, no, 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 I'm going to give you an heir, what does he do? He takes his servant girl, Hagar, and he impregnates her and has a son called Ishmael with her because he doesn't quite believe that God's going to pull through and, and fulfill his promises. And then... When God says, no, it's going to be Sarah's heir, Abraham's, or Sarah's child, Abraham says to God, will you please bless Ishmael anyway? Here's the point. Up until this story, over and over and over and over again, every time God calls Abraham to do something, Abraham obeys almost. Or he obeys mostly? But he's always got a plan B in the back of his pocket. Abraham's entire life boils down to a, a struggle over whether or not God will actually come through for him. Will God actually make good on his promises? And so when he's not sure, you know what Abraham does? He does what we all do. He diversifies his portfolio in order to minimize the losses, right? So I'm planning on following God wherever he tells me, but just in case, I got Lot as a foster boy. I've got Eliezer as a potential uh, uh, heir. I have Ishmael with my servant girl, Hagar, just in case. This is what we do. God says, I am all you need, trust me. I am all you need. And we say, yes! But I got to make sure I got my retirement fund figured out. And I really want to make sure that my family is in good shape. 
And yeah, God, you're amazing and I'd like to have you, but boy, I really want to have her too. Or that job, or that degree, or that whatever it, it is. See, we hedge our bets. We, we, we have plan B in our back pocket. I heard a guy named uh, Vince Vitale. He works for, he's a, a, a New Testament scholar, but also an apologist for uh, RZIM Ministries. And he, he says, here's a great question to see if you're holding on to any kind of idols in your life. He says, if tomorrow it could be scientifically proven that God absolutely does not exist, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, by the way, that's impossible, and that he gets that. But if it was possible, and if it happened tomorrow, that God was discovered to not exist that Jesus never existed and died for sins and never rose from the dead and all this kind of stuff, if that happened, could you get over it? If you're a Christian, could you get over the shock of discovering that it was all a sham? And he says, and I think rightly, if you have a plan B, then you would say, yeah, I could. I think I could get over it. If you have a backup, if you're finding your security and your identity and your uh, satisfaction in, in other things besides God, ultimately, then to, to discover that God no longer exists, exists would not utterly destroy you. You'd be able to find it somewhere else. But if you don't have a plan B, if you are staking, if you're here this morning because you are staking everything on the truth of what this book says about this God and his son and his death on the cross for your sin and his resurrection from the dead, if you were to find out it was all a scam, you'd lose the will to live. You would be in utter despair. You'd say, I have no hope. What do I do now? I'm completely lost. That's what it means not to have, not to have a plan B. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, if there is no resurrection, he says, then we are to be pitied beyond all people because we are still lost and our faith is futile because we are still dead in our sins and transgressions. You should be like devastated at the prospect that there is no God. See, when God says to Abraham, take your son, take your only son, whom you love, Isaac, he's signaling to Abraham, this son of yours has been your plan B. What do I mean by plan B? This son of yours has become the emotional center of your life. He's become the thing that you're looking to for your security, for your satisfaction, for your identity. And that will destroy you. And therefore, Abraham, I need to test you. And that's what God does. He tests him. In verse 1, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, this is not a pass-fail test, you know. When you study for biology and you fail your, your test, that's not what this is about. This is more like, the t- you know, when, uh, when they test steel for how much strength it has, it's that kind of test. It's more like that. 
God is testing the strength of Abraham's faith and the location of Abraham's faith. And Abraham rises to the test. Through the story, we discover that Abraham has found that he no longer has a backup. He no longer has a plan B. No. He has put all his trust in his one God. And we see this by, first of all, he goes right away to the place that he's told to go. It says, early the next morning, he's up and at him, and off he goes. Boom. Okay? To the place that he was told to go. So he went to the spot he was supposed to go to. And throughout the story, over and over again, he demonstrates faith in God's promises. Because when he reaches the mountain with his servants and Isaac, he says in verse 5, he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, talking about going up the mountain. We will worship and then we will come back to you. And then in verse 8, when Isaac, after verse 7, Isaac says, uh, hey, uh, we got the wood, we got the fire, we don't have a lamb, what's going on? Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, Sometimes people think, well, maybe Abraham said that to Isaac because he didn't want Isaac to freak out, right? You got your boy, you and your boy are going up the mountain, you got the fire, you got the knife, kid knows what's going on, we're going to sacrifice, kid's got the, 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 the wood on his back and he's looking around and as the, the closer they get to the summit and the top of the mountain, the kid's like, wait a minute, what, there's something off here, dad? Where's the sacrifice? As though the kid could somehow intuit that maybe something is wrong here. And so Abraham, he says, oh, God will provide to kind of keep him calm. That is not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here at all. He actually believes that somehow God is going to get them through this. And in fact, it's not just him who thinks somehow God is going to get them through this. Isaac believes that somehow God is going to get them through this too. This is not the story of one man's test of faith, faith with his poor helpless boy being used as a pawn in this game that God is playing with Abraham. That is not the story here at all. Do you notice in verse 5, it says, I and the boy will go. And then in verse, um, do I have this right? Yep, this is where I am. Then in verse 6, it says, the two of them went on together. And then in verse 8, again, it says, and the two of them went on together. Now, in Hebrew writing, which this is, when you say something three times like that, it's like, a, it's like one of those special neon arrow signs that says, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. This is a big deal. The big deal here is, is that Isaac and Abraham are on their way up this mountain together. They are in this so-called crazy act of obedience together. Three times it emphasizes that they're together. And I know it says the boy, and so maybe when it says the boy, you think to yourself, well, Isaac's just a little kid. He doesn't know what's going on, and he's just being used by his dad. That's not true either, because the very word Used for boy, translated boy here, is the same word that is used for Ishmael when Ishmael is 18 years old. It's the same word used for Benjamin, one of Jacob's sons, when he's 22 years old. And it's the same word used for Joseph, one of Jacob's other sons, when he's 33 years old. It means young man. And Isaac, in all likelihood, was a young, strapping, 
Bella. Because it says in verse 8, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he took the fire and the knife. Why? Do you, you don't know, I don't know, we don't know, how much wood it takes to do a burnt offering. It takes a lot of wood because the idea is, is that you burn up everything, okay? And he puts all that wood on Isaac's back. Why? For the same reason I have sons. So that they can do the heavy lifting for me. I did a big job at my house this summer. You should drive by and look at it. It's spectacular. <laughs> if I do say so myself. I put in a, 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 um, a stone walkway, but first I had to dig out all the dirt, right? And I had, I had all this big pile of dirt on my driveway, and then I got a, a trailer uh, from someone in the church, a dump trailer, and all this dirt had to go from the, from the ground into the trailer. And, and my son comes out there and just starts, and I'm like, because I'm an old coot. Abraham was a really old coot. He's 100 years old at this time. He's got this young, strapping son who can carry this with him. And by the way, when he puts Abraham, when Abraham puts Isaac on the pile of wood, Isaac must not, he, he just takes, like he, he doesn't fight back. You don't think he could wrestle his dad to the ground if he was fearing for his life and wanted to escape? No. Here's the question we got to ask ourselves. What drove Abraham up the mountain? What drove him and Isaac up the mountain? Was it him saying, I can do this, I got to do this, God is testing me, and I got to get through it, so just put your head down and go for it? No. What drove him up the mountain was... God will provide. I believe that. I know that in my bones. Listen, friends, every other religion in the world tells you that you have to sacrifice to God. You have to do it in order to appease him, in order to satisfy him, in order to make him happy. Whatever he wants, you got to do it. The gospel is the only faith on the planet that says God provides for you. He sacrifices for you, not the other way around. And Abraham put his trust in that. And by the way, when he did that, it was not sort of blindly following without using his brain. It wasn't like Abraham went, well, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. But God said so, so I will do it. Look, I believe in unconditional obedience. We talked about that last week. We got to sometimes obey when we don't understand anything. But we don't do that stupidly. There's a lot of people who say, you religious, and you kind of close your eyes to reality, and you just leap into faith in God. For no good reason. Just because you have to. Even Soren Kierkegaard, who talked about a leap of faith, and yes, you do have to take a leap of faith, but everybody has to take a leap of faith, but that's something maybe for the podcast. I can't talk about it right now. He believed that, that you did have to take a blind leap of faith, but that's not what Abraham is actually doing. Hebrews chapter 11 proves that that's not what he's actually doing because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and 18, it says this, 17 to 19, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Okay, so far so good. 
He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So the author of the Hebrews is saying, yeah, he, he embraced the promises, but he knew that the way it was going to happen was now under threat. So he's acknowledging the dilemma that Abraham had himself, found himself in. But then it says, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Do you hear that? Abraham reasoned. He didn't check his brain at the door. He reasoned. Where am I? You see, Christians have faith not at the expense of exercising their brain. They have faith because they're exercising their brain. Abraham reasoned. In other words, he believed God could do this. God was all-powerful and God was faithful. He could raise him from the dead. He reasoned. Now, how did he reason this? Go back to the beginning. What did we say at the beginning? Abraham had a history of always having this backup plan, always having a plan B, always hedging his bets a little bit and saying, okay, God wants this, but just in case, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have Lot. I'll have Eliezer. I'll have Ishmael. I'll do all this stuff, right? And every time Abraham went on his backup plan, it backfired on him. Every single time he screwed up, screwed his life up, screwed his future up, he, he actually went further away from the promises of God being realized in his life than getting closer to the promises of God being realized in his life. And he finally got to the point in this passage where he's like, okay, listen, I tried to pit my wisdom against yours. I tried to think I was wiser than you, but I screw up every time and I lose every time. No more. No more. I'm all in for you, God. I'm, I'm trusting entirely in you. I'm not going to get fooled again. I believe that you can raise the dead. He doesn't even say, Hebrew says, he doesn't even say he will raise the dead. He says he will provide. And, and I believe that he can raise the dead. And he's saying, maybe this obedience looks like death to me, but I know that there is a resurrection to come that I cannot even foresee. And the reason I know that is because I've seen you come through for me in the past. Every time he went with plan B, God had to step in and rescue him and bring him back. Otherwise, he'd be dead and gone by now. See, he reasoned it out. And God did provide, right? God did provide. He provided a ram in a thicket. And that ram would die so that Isaac didn't have to. And you're saying to yourself, why did Isaac have to die in the first place? Did you notice over and over again it says, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Like there's a particular sacrifice I want you to do, a burnt offering. And you read more in the, New, in the Old Testament, you discover burnt offerings were given for the atonement of sin. See, every time Abraham went with plan B, tried his own thing, he was sinning and rebelling against God. And every time God could have said, forget it, I am done with this turkey. Fine. Off to Egypt with you. Tell them that, I, that Sarah's your wife, whatever. You're going to get your head chopped off by the king of Egypt anyway. Dingle donk. But no, God in his grace resently, re relentlessly returns again and again and again and redeems him. Well, that sin has to be paid for. 
And in the Old Testament, that, that sign of that sin needing to be paid for was these burnt offerings that were, that were symbolic of God paying the penalty for sin. But we all know that the sins of animals, even the book of Hebrews will tell you, the sins of animals can't actually pay for the, for the sorry, the sacrifice of animals can't actually pay for the sins of human beings. So we're stuck. We're supposed to pay ourselves. And so Isaac was going to be a payment for that. But God provided a way out for him. And friends, he kept his promise to bless the nations through him. What does he say in verse 18 again? He says, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. But he did this in a way Abraham never, ever, 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 ever could have anticipated. Centuries later, a father and a son made their way up a mountain and the son carried the wood on his back. But in this story, when Jesus Christ climbed that hill to Calvary with his own cross on his back and he reached the place of provision, instead of a ram in a thicket, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. And he was nailed to that tree. And he died as the lamb. So that God could fulfill the promises that he's made to us when we put our trust in him. That we will live. That the, that the, the barrier between our relationship has been overcome. So that Paul, in Romans 8, can say this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Friends, give up your plan Bs. If, if you're not a believer, all you have are plan Bs. And every single one of them will fail in the end. It seems awesome for a while. But it ends up empty in the end. And if you are a believer, let go of all your plan Bs. Put all your eggs in the basket that is God. See that he is your satisfaction, that he is your great reward, that he is your fear. You know, he became Abraham's fear. It says here, I know that you fear me. And what God is saying there is not, you're afraid of me. It means fear in the sense of awe and wonder. Like, I'm the most amazing being in your life. It's the same thing that is said about Isaac only a few chapters later. God was Isaac's fear. He was the most important being in their lives. Their allegiance to anything else was never, would, would never supersede their allegiance to God. Embrace him. Embrace him. Let's pray. Father, Ooh. Help us to embrace you as the only thing to put our full trust in. Father, we, 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 we put our trust in other things. We hedge our bets. We maybe even give you a try for a while and then say, meh. Everything else fails in the end but you. Nothing is trustworthy like you. Enable us to believe that in our hearts and live that in our walk. In Jesus we pray, amen.